All right. Greetings and welcome back, everyone. This is Gnosis Episode 10. Uh, got a fantastic guest, Mr. Robert Frederick. Robert is the author of the podcast series, The Hidden Life is Best. It's all about Francis Bacon and Gnostic English Empire. And here's a little bit more about Robert. Robert Frederick is a researcher with a focus on Francis Bacon, the Shakespeare authorship question, the occult, science, and the hidden machinations of the English Empire. He's a tradesman, small business owner, and a musician. Trained in visual arts with a wide range of interests, has done extensive research into Francis Bacon in the last several years after a life-changing synchronicity. He actually believes he has extended Shakespeare's scholarship and hopes that doesn't sound too crazy. So without further ado, welcome to Gnosis, Mr. Robert Frederick. Hi, Cameron. How you doing? Hey, better now. We've had some technical issues today, but we're not going to quit. And I, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've been I've been listening to your podcast uh, for about two weeks straight now. And every time I come away with new data that uh, makes connections a little bit more apparent regarding this Leviathan matrix control system that we all find ourselves ensconced within. And I think you're doing tremendous work laying that bare. So I'd, I'd love to just let you take it away from here and tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got into this and, you know, the different ramifications for global policy and globalism that we're experiencing and so on and so forth. So please take the stage and, and let us uh, know a little bit what you've been digging up now regarding Francis Bacon. Uh, okay, thanks, Cameron. Well, I'm the latest in a long line of Francis Bacon obsessives. Um, he seems to inspire that in certain people. And um, the very first ever Shakespeare poem is called Venus and Adonis, written in 1593. It's a long, erotic uh poem with a violent ending. And immediately upon publication of that poem, some rival poets and other poets put out an answer poem, which they used to do back then. They talked to each other in poems, like an answer song today. And they made it quite clear in the language of the day that they were very suspicious that it was Francis Bacon that wrote that poem. So from the minute Shakespeare began, there have been suspicions of Bacon being involved. And it took off around the late 1700s, the mid 1800s really took off with a, a woman named Delia Bacon, who was friends with Emerson and Hawthorne. And she wrote a very persuasive book. And when people found out the facts, about uh, the life of William Shakespeare, us uh, Shakespeare authorship people call uh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare from Stratford, Stratford-upon-Avon, his hometown, we call him Shakespeare, because that's how he actually spelled his name, could not have possibly written the plays. And that becomes a solid fact once you spend 20, 30 minutes uh, on it. A, a woman named Diana Price just recently published a book called uh, New uh, New Evidence in the Shakespeare Authorship Problem. But Delia Bacon's book in 1850 turned on Mark Twain, who wrote a fantastic book called Is Shakespeare Dead? And on YouTube, there's a one-person show, stage show of that book a guy named Keir Cutler that's excellent. Is Shakespeare dead? Shakespeare, uh, Twain was pissed. 
because the when when you when you claim that uh, Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, people say, "Well, you don't believe in genius. You don't think a common person could be a genius." <laughs> but Mark Twain was a common person who's a genius, and he knows what it is to write, and you write what you know. And there's zero common life in Shakespeare, almost zero. It's so slanted towards royalty and gentry. And uh, it became a hot issue. Francis Bacon as Shakespeare was actually a very hot issue around that time, early 1900s. And it caught on, but it apparently was its own worst enemy because what happened was people got involved in trying to find hidden codes in the Shakespeare play because at the age of 15, Francis Bacon invented a, a cipher. And it was well known that he was uh, heavily involved in hiding messages in regular letters called steganography and also ciphering where you write what looks to be gibberish. But if somebody has the code, they can break it open and read it. And so a lot of kind of wacky ideas came out about hidden messages in the plays that made people look foolish and, and just kind of demean the whole thing where it's completely un unnecessary to go there. Although there's another great YouTube video I recommend called uh, Cracking the Shakespeare Code by a Norwegian Freemason and who's paired up with a British Shakespearean scholar who doesn't believe you know, in the Bacon theory at all. And they, it's a fantastic movie. And he gets into the codes. And you have to know Freemasonry to really even begin to use the coding system. So uh, it's great. Cracking the Shakespeare Code and Is Shakespeare Dead would be a really good introduction to the topic of uh, the Shakespeare authorship question in terms of Francis Bacon. And in terms of the fact that William Shakespeare didn't write the plays, uh, Diana, Diana Price on YouTube, just type in Diana Price Shakespeare. If you watch those three videos, you'll pretty much be up to speed on the, the Shakespeare Bacon question. And I got involved in it because I, I had zeroed in on the British Empire. I'm wondering, you know, why is the world such a mess? Everywhere I go, people seem decent and fair and live and let live. But all over the world, there are these problems. And the unifying problem maker seemed to be the British Empire had been there before. And I, having not studied history formally or Shakespeare formally, and coming at it with a suspicious mind, like what's really up? Like why did Francis Bacon really write these plays in a hidden way? It wasn't just because he loved to write and couldn't put his name on it as someone who was very involved with the, you know, the, the royal court at the time. It had to be something more than that. And I think I've come at it you know, with a fresh eye. And I see that what Francis Bacon wanted was to build the empire. And that's really, he's rarely associated with that. But if you look into his writings and you look at just what happened after Francis Bacon, the empire really began while Francis Bacon was alive. The first colony in America took place. 
Um, he, he didn't have the idea. I mean, that came a little earlier from John D. But there it was that he was involved in espionage from a very early age. They sent him to France at the age of 15. And he created this cipher, this secret code that's strangely reminiscent of modern computer coding and wrote about his interest in, in hidden messages. So that's why people got involved with that. And uh, if I can convince people that Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare, and I think that's an easy convince, there's been 5,000 books written on it. I have some amazing ones here. Sadly, the best one's out of print. It was self-published because it was another person who, who got into this uh, and did all the work on their own. This guy named N.B. Coburn, uh, making the Shakespeare Bacon question sane, uh, it just becomes overwhelming, the evidence that Bacon was involved in writing William Shakespeare. I don't know, and we don't know the full story, but that would be what's left to discover is who else was involved, who else helped write Shakespeare. And in terms of who knew, I think pretty much a lot of people knew and that it was a state secret and that you didn't talk about it. And it was a it was a very wealthy elite club that knew about this situation and fostered it and continued to foster it. And that Francis Bacon did it purposely. He created the myth of William Shakespeare to support the English Empire and that the English Empire would not be as successful without this myth, this hoax of William Shakespeare, the commoner genius, who's become known as the divine William, you know, the bard, the greatest writer of all time. <laughs> and it just keeps getting pushed on us. Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. And I finally jumped in to reading the plays. And funny enough, this summer, and we're going to get an all black production of Hamlet. And my next uh, expose, episode nine, is going to be called The Gnostic Hamlet. I'm, I'm deep, deep into a study of Hamlet right now, considered the greatest play ever written. It's really fascinating when you, when you really dive in to a story and try to analyze it from all different sides. And uh, my crack about extending Shakespeare scholarship would be because of Macbeth. If you listen to episode four and five of my series, I think I uncovered an interpretation of Macbeth that has not uh, been stated previously. I'm not sure because I didn't do a whole lot of reading. This time I'm reading hundreds of years of criticism of Macbeth and and getting like every point possible point of view on Macbeth. And then I'm going to dig in and find uh, the, the hidden Gnosticism because I think that is the key that ties all of this together. The desire for empire, the obsession with the occult, the obsession with science and knowledge and power, all, all comes out of a Gnosticism. But the story itself is so vast and overwhelming because Francis Bacon was not only Shakespeare or head of the Shakespeare project, but he's also considered to be the father of modern science. 
Wow. And if you tie those together, the empire, Shakespeare and science, you know, he's had more influence on the world than any single person, single other person. I, you, you really can divide the old world from the new world through the life of Francis Bacon. The world really changed after him in a large part because of the British empire and what it did and spreading English around the world and English culture around the world and English army and the English Navy and trade and international trade and the beginning of globalism and this kind of megalomania, this, this superiority complex, which is endemic to Gnosticism. Gnostics believe they're better than regular folks because they have the knowledge. And I think that's what happens when you, when you delve too deeply in the occult is that you, it breaks your brain. You begin to become an elitist. You see it happen over and over again with all kinds of people and how it, you know, it's kind of the roots of communism. It's the root of fascism. It's the root of uh, dictatorships, this sense of superiority, which Francis Bacon had in spades. And you can see it in that portrait of him. So that portrait on the screen now, I think it's on the screen, is him when he was 18. He might have been in France at the time. Did they have the share screen? The share and, screen? On? And if you'd like to share your own screen, uh, I think we got it. Oh, ready we this go. time. I know we had some issues before. Is that the, is this the one you're referring to with the top hat? Uh, no, he's got the big white collar. Oh, right. Let me, uh, you know, I'll he's next to Elizabeth there with her snake outfit on it's called the rainbow portrait, the rainbow. Here we go. I'm going to go ahead and switch these out. And there we are. Yes. Okay. So you're absolutely right. It's, it should be secret snobriety because every secret <laughs> society member I've ever known is a massive snob. Yeah. who presumes that they have greater gnosis yeah. and that you are and they're and they're this is drilled into their heads they they refer yeah. to others non-initiated as profane yeah and and in harry potter speak muggles so uh yeah. i think you're absolutely you, you're you've got your finger on the pulse my friend and and i i know you're probably like all of us you're so busy but the minute your book is printed i'm buying a copy and i'd love to get a signed <laughs> copy because it's absolutely fascinating but please continue this is i'm i'm really enjoying this already well the the problem story is there's just so many big big topics just the history of science the, the history of tudor london uh shakespeare itself just to dig into one shakespeare play but what makes the story really crazy is that bacon was all, also considered one of the greatest lawyers of all time. He rose to nearly becoming king. And that's a whole other story. It's like, did Francis Bacon want to be king? And it appears that he did. But if you get into the whole Tudor drama, which does get pretty interesting. I mean, what a soap opera. But Queen Elizabeth claimed she was a virgin. She claimed she didn't have any kids. So Francis Bacon wasn't related. He couldn't be king. But he was her son. And this kind of psychological effect on a person, I think, goes a long way to explaining his incredible genius. Not only did he was he the son and know he was the son at some point, but he was given the absolute perfect education 
and he he was a precocious learner, spoke uh, Latin and Greek by seven. As some people said, he read every book printed at the time, every book available in London. Uh, hungry for knowledge, dropped out of college at the age of 15, announcing he was bored. You know, he, he never got a college degree, but they let him go to law school. He had to have a profession. But so not only a great lawyer, and that's so fascinating, like his, it's just his life, just how his life progressed, which I won't go into now because then you kind of need to know more about Tudor London and, and the times, but that's a fascinating story and how the gaps in his life fit perfectly with when the Shakespeare plays were written and when they weren't being written anymore, like scholars believe the last one was written in 1610 was when his career, uh, official career began and when he became attorney, eventually became attorney general of England, eventually became the Lord Chancellor of England, which is a position that still exists, which is sort of like next in line to the king. And he was king for a few weeks when uh, James, King James I, went back to Scotland for a few weeks. He was regent, he, was, he functioned as king. So his whole life story is, is amazing. But where this gets really crazy is father of modern science, Shakespeare, one of the great lawyers ever, according to some lawyers, that I'm not real clear on. There's a book on it. Maybe one day I'll get to that. But he was a prominent lawyer and did a lot of legal writing. And there was a lot of law in England. You know, they're, they're famous for that. But he has been implicated with starting modern Freemasonry, yes. who it is now conclusively shown that the rumors, hundreds of years of rumors that the Freemasons were the outgrowth of the Knights Templar is, is undoubtedly true. It's just way too much evidence. And the book for that is called Born in Blood, if you like uh, history, that's an independent historian wrote this book born in blood the lost secrets of freemasonry nice. and so that's another another massive topic are the knights templars and freemasonry itself is another massive topic it's just hundreds of years they've spread around the world i think they're a cult they're a fascinating uh structure uh it's a religion it maybe not doesn't fit the exact definition of a cult, but it is a religion. And that's just a whole nother massive topic in this story, the greatest story never told of the man, the smartest man who ever lived. Because if you know anything about Francis Bacon's most famous book, The New Atlantis and the Rosicrucian Manifestos, it appears that Francis Bacon was the Rosicrucians. And I'm sure there were other occultists at the time and people involved, but an honest, intellectually honest person who knows Bacon's writings and knows uh, the Rosicrucian manifestos and knows the New Atlantis would have to say he was heavily involved with, with Rosicrucianism. 
which is another huge topic. And but then the other thing I think that I've been original on is tying him in with espionage, because at the age of 15, he was in France developing secret codes and probably was a courier. He was known to have an incredible memory. So he could probably take, you know, long, long messages back to England uh, with, without a letter to be to be stopped. They would routinely stop diplomats and take their letters. And even though they'd be in secret codes, they would try to crack the codes. And, and modern espionage also began in that era. So you got modern science, modern literature, the English Empire, Freemasonry, and modern espionage. It, oh, is, is that all? <laughs> it goes Lord. on and on and on. Pretty much everything modern came out of London after that point. It's it's mind blowing and hasn't really been pointed out that much. But you know, the Industrial Revolution began right right in London. You know, modern English, uh, you know, rock and roll. Although that really began in America, because they don't they can't claim the blues. You know, America's got the blues. <laughs> And that's the huge musical influence, but they grabbed it right away and spread it all around the world. Uh, English sports, you know, Shakespeare, English language has conquered the world. Uh, English banking and finance, which I don't think Francis Bacon had much to do with, and it's a key part of the empire, but he did strongly advocate for legalizing, uh, charging, uh, loaning money at interest which was still illegal in the late 1500s because it banned in the Bible. Usury was, was illegal. But loaning money at interest began in earnest, uh, partly because Francis Bacon advocated for it. And so modern capitalism really began in Tudor London, especially with the colonies, because the colonies needed products and the products were supplied by the industrial revolution which followed very quickly upon the invention of modern science which bacon was the cheerleader for he's not wasn't really a scientist you know he's more obviously more of a literature guy and a lawyer but he saw the potential for science and he strongly advocated to set up a system of data sharing and knowledge and he wanted to move it away from alchemy. So alchemy is really the source of chemistry. And alchemists were very secretive and kept their, you know, their methods a secret. But Bacon had seen that that advances in technology, how important they were and how much power they could bring to England. And there you get his most famous saying is knowledge is power. That's Francis Bacon. The actual quote is knowledge itself is power. And that is what he was interested in. He wanted power and he is so brilliant. He devised this plan of using the Shakespeare plays and the Shakespeare phenomenon as kind of a, a cover for the malevolence of empire. Because when you think about England, you think of a faded empire. Well, there's, that empire is still there because it's hidden, because the hidden life is vast. But really, when you think about England now, you think about gentility, manners, Shakespeare. I, I get to find anyone to, to think about England for more than five minutes without mentioning Shakespeare. I think it's almost impossible. 
<laughs> king charles the new king when he first spoke to parliament after his mother died he name dropped shakespeare within 30 seconds and as shakespeare said about the first queen elizabeth something like that like he had to bring in shakespeare because it's a shield it's an, an aegis it's a protective shield that makes people forget like how brutal this empire is which is the greatest empire of all time in terms of size it's conquered the planet all these things music tennis british sports tennis and soccer all over the world cricket it's uh it's just an incredible story that i i feel like it's you know the greatest story never told and it's it its ramifications today are that you know this great reset was first announced by prince charles two years ago he used those terms the great reset and the COVID opportunity and sustainability and he's really pushing hard for net zero carbon net zero which means grounding most flights and changing most agriculture and really crazy authoritarian top-down control a kind of emerging of fascism and communism which both originated from take a guess you know london marx wrote das kapital in london or the communist manifesto sorry marx and engels wrote the communist manifesto in london and there's a researcher named Richard Poe. Oh no, Matt Arrett, Canadian guy, Matt Arrett, who has a great speech. I'll send you the link, a great talk about how fascism really came out of London too, because it fits that profile of the British elite, not the British commoner and the British average person, but the British elite with this intense nationalism and this intense superiority complex and this, you know, occultism. And I guess the final, the final link is the Gnosticism, which gets a little bit harder to prove because you have to know what Gnosticism is, but it's, it's in the podcast and it, it ties in with the occultism that's very uh, prominent with Kabbalah and Freemasonry and alchemy and magic, which were really this incredible stew of occultism in Tudor England and, and Europe at that time. And Francis Bacon is famous for, for kind of pushing the occult aside and focusing on, you know, data and rationality with the new science. But what appears to have happened is that the occult just got hidden and moved into the, uh, the secret societies and the new Freemasonry, which, you know, blossomed. Like the story of Freemasonry is just incredible and it's absolutely key to the British Empire. And you can definitely make a strong case that Francis Bacon was involved with the founding of Freemasonry. So all in all, it's just this crazy, immense story that I'm slowly um, chipping away at. And I'm presently working on Hamlet uh, it's considered to be the greatest play of all time by many, many people. It's considered to be the greatest Shakespeare play. It's a very intense play. 
and I've watched it three or four times and read it three or four times. And, I, and this time, instead of like Macbeth, which is where I made the crack about extending Shakespeare scholarship, uh, you'd have to listen to episode four and five for that. I didn't do any research into Macbeth. I just went at it and just devoured it from a Gnostic angle. But with Hamlet, I'm reading, you know, hundreds of years of, of, uh, of criticism of specifically Hamlet, which this American uh, literature professor is considered to be the uh, greatest American uh, critic of literature. His name is Harold Bloom. He just recently passed away. He was a big Shakespeare fan, big Shakespeare nut. He, he wrote this book called The Invention of the Human. Shakespeare invented what it means to be human. Like something really crazy. <laughs> but he's this big intellect who wrote about a lot of things. He was actually quite famous before he died. And lo and behold, this is the kind of thing you discover when you get into this. He was a self-professed Gnostic, which is kind of a weird thing to be. Not anymore. I mean, it's very popular now. And Gnosticism is seen as kind of cool and rebellious. And oddly, it's kind of seen as the great leveler, like it's the, it's the little guy fighting the big guy. But really, Gnosticism is, are the big guys and the elitists, which is not mentioned. I don't know if you know anything about uh, that book, The Gnostic Gospels, that came out in the 70s. I've been meaning to read that, but is that Elaine Pagels? Elaine Pagels. I've not read it yet. Um, I remember you mentioned it in the podcast. Uh, but no, I, I feel like uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm behind having not read that. What would you make of it overall? Like, well, uh, you know, it was more propaganda. Well, yeah, it was super popular. It kind of started the Gnostic craze that's resulted in, you know, movies like The Matrix and uh, The Truman Show and dozens of others now. And it was a really good book. It was really popular. It's fascinating because it's all about ancient religion. Like we're all kind of obsessed with like early Christianity and, and ancient Judaism and how the religions all work together. So ultimately, if you study Gnosticism deeply, it's a, it's a study of comparative religions because Gnosticism grabbed from every major religion, from Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity. It's kind of synonymous with the founding of Christianity, Egyptian religion, Pythagoreanism, um, other mystery schools, initiation, initiatory mystery schools. And Elaine Pagels writes this book that kind of begins kind of the Christian bashing. She makes it seem like these Christians were genuine and, and not so authoritarian and welcomed, you know, women's point of view more and how sad that they got wiped out by those authoritarian Christians. When in fact, she never really mentions, she barely mentions that Gnostics believe that the God of this world is evil. <laughs> she kind of, she, she brushes past it. <laughs> and, she, and she really doesn't mention like how the Gnostics were elitist and superior and felt like regular Christianity is for the, for the small folk. And that Gnosticism was for the people with special knowledge. 
And you don't really notice that. Like I, I never noticed that. You just don't notice it when you read it. You, you catch this, this sense that the Gnostics were cool and interesting. And they are interesting. They certainly weren't cool, but they were interesting. And they were very big at one point. And they did get wiped out by the Romans, I think. Not real clear on that because, uh, but the, you know, Constantine in 325 held a big conference of Christians and made them solidify uh, their theology and their, um, their Bible. And it certainly didn't include uh, overt Gnosticism. And uh, at that point, Gnosticism started went into a decline, but it also didn't capture the spirit of the times because it was elitist and because it was not unified because every gnostic sect had different rituals and different literature and the one thing in common they had was that they believed that the world was essentially evil made by an evil god which kind of left you with two alternatives either you try to tear it down pay no attention to any morality or you live like a monk in a cave and, and try to stay completely pure, which is why it's a comparative religion thing, because that is like Hinduism, that is like Buddhism, and it is like Christianity, where, you know, Christians are supposed to be not of this world, in this world, but not of it. So they're very close to Christianity, and they, uh, a lot of the sects, Jesus Christ was their hero. It's really, really amazing remarkable so there's just a ton of material here that i'm trying to put into a shape that i can understand it and um and get a book out of it and the podcast is helping with this and that's that's where i'm at right now cameron thanks for asking that's my pleasure i'm uh you know i i part of me wanted to transcribe the podcast and read them that way just to internalize a lot of the connections uh uh, yeah, I think you have a, a, a hit on your hands, and, and I really do look forward to when it's when it comes out because it, it is massive what you're revealing here. That this all goes back to England. This all goes back to the occult, yeah, and secret society, and, and what we've experienced in the last few years with the the Great Reset, the Great yeah. Awakening, uh, COVID. Because COVID has never <laughs> been proven. It's never been isolated, and they admit as much. It's never been a, uh, isolated as a virus. So. It's all speculation, and they use PCR tests to give false positives. They use media yeah. to incite panic. Yeah, uh, media. Cause they, yep. Yeah, because they love to invoke the god Pan. So pandemonium, panic, pandemic. It's Good all one. covert reference to absolutely the devil, which is really appears to be the god of Gnostics uh, in large part. Uh, it can, yeah, there's definitely some relationship there. But oh, they use science. You see how sciencey it is, right? You know, scientists <laughs> are telling you. So science became the new religion. Francis Bacon created a new religion, and it's a Gnostic religion because they're trying to gain power to challenge the natural order. They want they want to be able to create life in the laboratory. They're desperate to do that because that would be a challenge to right, to God. God. Yeah. Oh, it's insane. And, and yeah, it's uh, crazy. <laughs> it's yeah, we're living in a fever dream of madmen. And you you had uh quoted a few times throughout the podcast 
uh, this perspective of, of Bacon where three types of, of uh, ambition. Oh, yeah. You want me to read that? Yes, please. I think that just uh, what you just described, it gets across the hubris of the mentality of these so-called elites and really how they're they're just inevitably they're trust fund kids gone power mad. You know? <laughs> Good one. Crowley's another example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And where did Crowley come from? Absolutely. Oxford, Trinity College, yeah. London. All conspiracy roads lead to London. Yes. Pretty much. The only one I can't put in is this uh, postmodernism, which informs a lot of the wokeness. I can't quite peg that to London, but I'm sure there's a connection, this modern philosophy, postmodernism. But this is... This quote I'm about to read is from his most famous book of philosophy called Novum Organum. And it's the one where he's advocating for science. And it's considered kind of a pure work of philosophy. It's a, it's a series of short little sayings almost. And you'll see it reprinted in, in books of collections of great works of philosophy. So Francis Bacon, I didn't, remember, I didn't even mention this, is considered one of the great modern philosophers. So another just crazy angle to this. In fact, people often say, oh, the, the philosopher Francis Bacon. Um, you know, when he was, uh, and that's, anyway, so this is the quote, which is not in my copy of Nava Morganum, but it's in Nava Morganum because I've seen online versions of it. This is near the end of the book, and it ties in with his philosophy of dominionism. And this is typical Bacon speak. Quote, further, it will not be amiss to distinguish the three kinds, and as it were, three grades of ambition in mankind. The first is of those who desire to extend their own power in their native country. Which kind is vulgar and degenerate? And to me, he seems to be talking about Macbeth and Lady Macbeth there, that type. The second is of those who labor to extend the power of their country and its dominion among men. This certainly has more dignity. What? Like to try to take over other countries is dignified? This certainly has more dignity, though not less covetousness. But if a man endeavors to establish and extend the power and dominion of the human race itself over the universe, his ambition, if ambition it can be called, is without a doubt a more wholesome thing and a more noble than the other two. Wow. So trying to conquer the universe is noble and uh not not covetous uh and it's not even ambitious it's just what mankind was meant to do conquer the universe and and i guess for some people that's that's exciting and they they believe that you know it's the opposite of like chinese philosophy or native american philosophy where you're you want to integrate yourself with the cycles of nature and see yourself as one with nature. But with Francis Bacon, it was about conquering nature. And that's where we are right now.
with science and to truly conquer nature you need the control of the population yes. to, you know to fuel your ambitions take their taxes and build these laboratories and go into stem and do more research and push 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 science 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 and i think they might have made a mistake you know with covid just you know people like you and me talking about pandemic and fake pcr tests and fake treatments and how fake the science has become that's a very very important that we we hammer on that point that they use science to lie to us. And we were taught in school that science is, is a pure search for the truth. And our society has imbibed that unconsciously. Even if we know like uh, scientists come up with some crazy stuff, unconsciously, you know, we want to know about the, the latest study. What, what, what did that study say? What does the science say? You know, show me the science. And we have to know science and know how to read fake science and and how much incredible fake science there was. And that even to say the science is settled means it's not science. Right. Because science was never is never settled. You know, it's always an open question. And and actual if you know science, you'll know that nothing is ever proved with science. It's disproved. And, and or it's proved for a while because there's the future. You never know what the future holds, so you can't prove it because we're we're total uh, ignorance about the future. So that science is always contentious. Science is always to be debated. But the first thing they did during the pandemic was shut down debate, which should be a massive red flag to anyone who knows anything about science. But because science has become so corrupted, the scientists on the side of the elite, you know, didn't even say anything about the corruption. I mean, Fauci's the best example, but all the other scientists, they didn't scream and shout at some of these crazy things that were happening. Like the Lancet article that trashed hydroxychloroquine that got pulled two weeks later as being completely fabricated. It should have been a major scientific scandal. Should have been a mud on the face of all of science. It should have been you know, examining themselves, but it just, the whole story just disappeared. Like somehow they've gotten a hold of almost all the major institutions in the Western world. And I think that's, that was part of the plan. I really do. I think that's how Freemasonry works and, and a kind of a, a ability to influence people's thinking, which uh, is what Bacon said about the theater. Uh, I have a quote here. Bacon loved the theater. And his first big book after his mother, Queen Elizabeth, died in 1603 and James took the throne Bacon suddenly became normalized and he got knighted and he published his first big book called The Advancement of Learning. So that's his topic, right? Like increasing knowledge, which he said when he was 15 and dropped out of college, he was already on this whole thing like Plato and Aristotle are boring and they, they didn't advance knowledge. They just debated. 
we need knowledge. Uh, so this is 1605 book, The Advancement of Learning, where he talks about theater or dramatic poetry. So here's the quote. Dramatic poetry, which has the theater for its world, would be of excellent use if it were sound, was carefully watched by the ancients that it might improve mankind in virtue. And indeed, many wise men and great philosophers have thought it to the mind as the bow to the fiddle. And certain it is that the minds of men in company are more open to affections and impressions than when alone. So he play your mind like a violin with theater. And that is so prevalent now and, and so been discovered. There's a lot of great podcasts out there now examining the effect of movies and Netflix and the you know, the social programming and the social conditioning that comes through these movies, which is so obvious to us now. And we certainly watch old Hollywood movies about the conquering of the West and the World War II propaganda. Now there's a lot of LGBTQ propaganda and anti-Russian propaganda for a while. And then it switched to anti-Muslim propaganda and they're just using theater to mold the masses because it is the bow to the fiddle of men's minds, as Francis Bacon said in 1605. It's just tons of this evidence everywhere. Every time I start reading some of this stuff, it's just another piece of evidence that Bacon knew exactly how to create the British Empire. And isn't it uh, theorized that Bacon may be responsible for the King James Version of the Bible as well. And there's that. He's, he's involved with uh, editing the Bible. So the story of the Bible, that's another really interesting story. Um, you weren't allowed to own a Bible in the Middle Ages. Because then you'd see how phony the church was. You know, Jesus walking around in sandals and stuff. And there was no church. He never actually calls for the creation of a church. But that's a whole nother story. But eventually, people wanted the Bible. They wanted to translate it out of Latin, which had become a dead language. Nobody spoke Latin anymore, except in the Catholic Church. And they would, most of the ceremony took place in Latin. And it was cool. It was mysterious. It was cool theater. You know, that stuff used to function very, very, very well as theater, the Catholic Mass. But slowly the Bible started getting uh, translated into German and then into English. And there was an English version of the Bible. It's called the Tyndale Bible. And he was murdered for his efforts. But because of the Reformation and the weakening power of the church, it was decided that we needed a good standard Bible here in England. And when King James took the throne, uh, it was decided to put together a committee of men to translate the Bible. And they largely used the Tyndale Bible. And then they gave the translation to King James and it disappeared for a year before it was brought back out and published. 
And it is speculated, and there's no hard evidence for this, that Francis, it was given to Francis Bacon to polish up. And some of that evidence is in the graphics and in the headstock uh, of the Bible. Some of it is in the language, which people think of as Shakespearean. They might call it Elizabethan. But yeah, he seems to have been involved in translating the Bible. And there is one incredible clue, which, see if I can find it real, cl mm -hmm. no real quick. It's called Psalm 46. Oh, yeah, that's right. Have you heard of Psalm 46? Yes, that number 46, is that is that the amount of references given to a particular uh, name? No, it's no, I'm, uh, I'm confusing uh, that with another cipher. Okay, I have the actual psalm here somewhere. Um, what it is, is there's this book of the Bible called the Psalms. And if you go to the 46th Psalm, and this was the kind of number, kind of Pythagorean, Gematria number games that Bacon loved to play and Freemasons loved to play and Kabbalists loved to play. It's kind of like a number magic. The 46th Psalm, which I could read to you if I could actually find it. I had it out. If you count... 46 words from the first word of the psalm. The 46th word is shake. Mm. And if you go to the last word, there it is on my screen top. Mm -hmm. If you go to the last word and count back by 46, you come to the word spear. <laughs> Clever. So Shakespeare is embedded in the 46th psalm, the King James Version of the Bible. So there's a lot of clues like that. And that's what some people like to do is, is look look for clues like that. But yeah, it must have been Francis Bacon. What is that called? A skip trace? I'm trying to remember. I'm not the, sure what that's called. It's that type of ciphering. And so he's this expert. Uh, expert. Cryptographer. Yeah. Who essentially may have invented modern computing. And then you've got guys like Charles Babbage on the record saying he summoned the devil at age 13 or 14. Interesting. And, that I hadn't heard. And he goes on to invent the Benference machine, which was the original uh, computer, the first the first prototype that worked. Yeah, that, it's so England just being immersed in the occult and the connection to transhumanism. Yeah. And oh AI. yeah, Rosicrucianism oh is the beginning of transhumanism. Yes, because they wanted to conquer death. Yes, that's ultimately what transhumanism is, and it's right there in the Rosicrucian Manifesto, straight up. And it's part of the Gnostic, you know, mission. And I think Francis Bacon changed Gnosticism from this kind of rejection of the world into one of wanting to take power over the world. He saw that with science, they could, they could change. It's a scientific Gnosticism. They could seize control of the world with science. They didn't need to, to trash it or, or sit in a cave and meditate wear hair shirts and not have sex and eat only you know, brown rice. And that's the conquering the universe thing.
and that's that's the Gnostic piece. It's really all over the place when you start looking at it, and it's all over Shakespeare. I just found it right in Macbeth. I'm finding it in Hamlet, and a lot of Gnosticism in Hamlet, which is just embedded in the play. And that's the thing. Like, if I can convince people that Bacon wrote Shakespeare, which is pretty easy, and this next episode is an introduction to the Gnostic Hamlet and a more detailed assessment of all the evidence that Bacon wrote Shakespeare. Well, then inside Shakespeare is tons of Freemasonry. Yes. So you have that helps prove that he formed modern Freemasonry. And there's tons of Rosicrucianism in, in Freemasonry. And there's just tons of Rosicrucianism in Bacon's writings. I mean, that's, I think I've mentioned that already, that intellectually honest person would have to say that yeah, it looks pretty pretty clear that Bacon was the Rosicrucian. And there you go. If, if you can if you can go that far, and it's really hard for people that are already invested in, in the in the myth of Shakespeare as the commoner, in the myth of this strange country lad who wrote these incredible plays. You just believed it all your life. It's really hard right. to switch. But when people hear the facts, they're so astonishing. Not a single manuscript, there's not a single letter. His children were illiterate. There's only six examples of Shakespeare's handwriting and three of them are on his last will and looked like he could barely write. It looks like Shakespeare couldn't read or write, which was common back then. I think only 10 to 20% of the population knew how to read. You can at least open your mind to, okay, who did write it? And if Francis Bacon wrote it, maybe you can see that he did it. He did it for the reason of helping to create the empire because that you'll find in his writings too. Like to, to come in by stealth rather than with an army. Uh, he, he's got those kind of writings too. And he also has this, um, this quote from his book of essays. So pretty, pretty much the only thing Francis Bacon wrote until he was in his 40s was this book called Essays, which is the second or third most famous book. It's often cited as the first book in modern English. Because that's the other thing, Bacon is, is can be credited with, with <laughs> revising the English language. Just another thing that he did. It's just incredible. Would he be considered the protege of John D? No, uh, protege. He's a student of. Is that the same thing, protege? Somewhat. It's almost yeah. like the heir, heir apparent. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. There's not a lot of evidence. They spent a lot of time together, but their circles intertwined, and there's some some graphics, some etchings that show an old man in the beard handing over the lamp to a Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon always has a hat and there are roses, you know, the Rosicrucian thing. And John Dee was heavily into the Kabbalah, heavily into alchemy. John Dee was brilliant. He was a kook, heavily into the occult, heavily into, you know, talking to angels. And that's, he straddled that era when magic went out of favor. Um, and they, they, they tried to put an end to all that kind of talking to angels and demons stuff that 
that uh, Dee was part of. And Dee was really heavily into numerology and gematria and Kabbalah and all that stuff. And he shifted it. He hid it. He smoothed it out. He made it seem less crazy. And um, I, he was definitely a student of John Dee. John Dee was definitely the start of some of the stuff. John Dee created the term Great Britain, for instance, which didn't begin until Scotland joined England and Francis Bacon was part of that. He helped negotiate you know, the treaty that joined Scotland to England and started, started Great Britain. There was, there was Bacon again. And, and, and as a, you know, master of espionage, he would write about, you know, hiding. And this, this is another thing I want to read. It's called, it's from his book of essays. It's called On, on Dissimulation and Simulation. And this is it. It says, quote, there be three degrees of this hiding and veiling of man's self. The first, closeness, reservation, and secrecy. When a man leaveth himself without observation or without hold to be taken what he is. The second, dissimulation in the negative. When a man lets fall signs and arguments that he is not that he is. And the third, simulation in the affirmative. When a man industriously and expressly feigns and pretends to be what he is not. He goes on to say in the essay that he approves of the first two, closeness, reservation, and secrecy, and dissimulation in the negative. Uh, not normally the third, but later he adds, no man can be secret except to give himself a little scope for dissimulation, which is, as it were, only the skirts or train of secrecy. So the, the whole espionage piece and secrecy, which is a big, big part of Freemasonry, you know, the secrecy. And what a great way to do espionage is to put these Freemasonic lodges all over the world where whatever was said in those lodges couldn't be spoken of outside the lodge. And you were sworn to secrecy after you did a very, very theatrical initiation. You know, with these, these strong words, it seemed to have a really, really strong effect on Freemasons, you know, that really, really bonds them. It's this whole dying and rising ritual that they go through for their third initiation. And they call it uh, getting raised, where they got raised. And somehow that, that initiation and you're sworn to secrecy with a knife at your throat, yeah. you know, really, really works. Incredible. It's, it's, you had mentioned hypnosis, and it, it seems to be an induction of a, a new yeah. life experience. And then yeah. the chemistry that is released is probably yeah. on par with some of the peak experiences someone can have in life, birth, death, uh, terrorism. And they've, they've codified it, and they've, they've unleashed it on the world. And yes, these people, and of course, they do murder Masons who go afoul of their oaths. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's no joke. And, it's and no yet, joke. it's no joke at all. And they've used it to colonize the entire planet. Absolutely. And that's this uh, 
it hasn't been written about very much because it was frowned upon as an academic uh, discipline. You know, you get made fun of. Oh, geez, what, what are you talking about? Freemasons? Oh, what a waste of time. No, I won't give you any money to study Freemasonry. Uh, but it has finally started to happen. And uh, here's one transformation of Freemasonry. This is the one that has the some of the details about slavery and how Freemasons were, you know, captains of the slave ships. And where is the other one? It's called. Um, so really, the for, Builders the, the, of Empire. In in New York, where you are, are you in Manhattan? Yeah. So they're they're calling for what two hundred million dollars of reparation per uh, African American. So really, they should be storming Freemasonic churches yeah. <laughs> and demanding the reparation. It's the English elite did it, and I think the Duke of Buckingham, my daughter sent me something. Uh, was got a cut of every slave that was sold. I mean, it went right to the very top of the. Of, the royal family, the royal elites in Britain, slave slavery did. And then the way it was structured is the slaves were in America and, and other colonies uh, doing agricultural work, which they needed steel tools for. You know, they needed hoes and all kinds of shit. I guess they needed, you know, terrible instruments, shackles. And they needed all this industrial goods, which came out of London. So they made money on the slaves and they made money on these plantations that needed the goods from the Industrial Revolution. So the reason England is so rich is because of the slave trade. And I was in Georgia a couple years ago and I was in this tiny museum in a town called called uh, Darien. It's a really cool little town right on the coast. And it has a rich history of the Scottish you know, Highlanders coming in and settling and there was a letter written about 1770 to King George. It was a beautifully well-written letter with like 10 bullet points. And it was like, please do not make slavery legal in the state of Georgia. Don't do it. Here's why. Bullet point, da-da-da, bullet point, bullet point. And the last bullet point was, you know, this won't end well this won't last this is going to get ugly and of course king george approved slavery so just that that those decrees by the king legalizing slavery and of course francis bacon was partly involved because he was attorney general of england when the first slaves hit america there was no legal chat about it jesus that legal <laughs> they just ignored it and eventually, that's another thing I need to look into. Because eventually they banned, England banned slave trading early. And they look like, this is the way they stay hidden. This is the way they manage perception. They look like the good guys. They stopped it early and they sent their Navy out to stop slave trading. Of course, it continued surreptitiously. But <clears throat> that whole history of, of who made it legal and who profited from it. And it was the wealthy, of course. <clears throat> but now they've shifted the blame to poor whites in America, like it was their idea. <laughs> no, it was a system that was imposed on them. Right. And it was very hard to, to 
to break out of, as most systems are once they're imposed. That's why we, we really have to stop this, you know, these vaccine passports and digital IDs, because once the system is in, it's tough to stop it. And, you know, Charles, the King of England is pushing, you know, vaccine passports and 15 minute cities. All this stuff is, is coming in England really hard. And you'll notice with the pandemic, the countries that locked down the worst were all British satellites, New Zealand, Australia, Canada. And you couldn't leave Canada if you weren't vaccinated. Yeah. Um, England and Scotland itself, the whole trans thing, LGBTQ yeah. thing, the trans agenda is really big in England, which does not have a uh, First Amendment. There's no freedom of speech in England. Hmm. So they're going to, you know, they can lock you up for hate speech if you say, uh, you know, what is this crazy, you know, trans nonsense? How can a woman be a man? You know, they can knock on your door if you put that on social media in England. It's crazy. But that's an ink. Yeah. Oh, it's this total religion of gaslighting hypocrisy. Completely. Everything, everything's inverted as you've, as you've brought forward. It's all about inversion. It's all about uh, assuming control. And yeah. anything goes, of the, you know, torturing slaves into submission and then telling them that it was their democratic election that created this, <laughs> this reality. You know, while yeah. it was all stage managed. So it's like it's crazy making on every level imaginable. And it's it's demonology. It's something like they're connecting with the the devil, if you will. Which yeah, you could know, be, man. I mean, that's what ba that's what D was doing. And yeah, that's what Aleister Crowley was doing. He claims he connected to the devil. Absolutely. They all do. And that was totally run by British uh, intelligence. He was an agent. So, yeah, absolutely. It's I think terrifying. it grew out of it, grew out of this Gnosticism, which doesn't really talk about the devil, but it's so close to Satanism. You know, once you believe that God is evil and you want to trash the world, that's very little different than Satanists who just hate God and want to trash the world. Speaking of which, are, are you familiar with the work of uh, Alex Rivera or Tracy Twyman into yeah. uh, Bathamy? So I I yeah. could play a, a quick clip uh, sure. from a previous episode, and we'll just uh, use this as a point of, of consideration. So here we go. I'm going to fire this up. He called her meat. He says, this is what Baphomet is based on. And meat comes from metis, which is wisdom. And his interpretation of the word Baphomet was baptism of wisdom. He thought that was kind of a, a ritual that they were probably doing. We piece this together from witchcraft traditions, uh, certain Gnostic sects and their traditions. The idea is that the God of the Bible is an evil God. There's an inscription around this particular casket. The distinguished charity of meat uproots the enemy. He said that that represents pederasty. So in other words, having sex with children. All right, and uproots the enemy. Who's the enemy? That's the God of the Bible. What I think this image is depicting is meat pulling the sun and the moon down from the sky. You know, the heavens falling, basically destroying God's creation. The baptism of wisdom, which is a blasphemous ritual involving sex with children in this context, is what they thought would make that happen. What I think is that when the Templars were actually doing their rituals, 
they were using these heads. In every Templar preceptory, they had a head of some sort that they would use as their baphomet. This is like what you would get if you put male and female, good and evil, together in the same entity. They say he's the sun of suns and the moon of moons and the secret of all secrets. So I highly recommend that work. Uh, rest in peace, Tracy Twyman. Uh, Alex has been on the show before, and I'd love to have a round table with you and him and, and other independent researchers. Are you still still there, Robert? Yeah, I just want yeah. To make yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, yep. great, great. And one more quick clip that kind of ties this together regarding the purpose of these massive psyops like FOVID, the pandemic, the scandemic, okay. is that these Gnostics in their ultimate hubris and their assault and all that's good and natural god itself if you will uh they need to perform massive rituals public rituals so before fovid was launched in 2012 in the olympic games they did this massive uh, olympic opening ceremony and you had something like a, a five ten story tall valdemort character with a magic wand with children in in medical beds dancing a lot like the the crazed nurses we see dancing in these supposedly uh, these hospitals are supposed to be maxed out but they're actually empty so this inversion this crazy making this gaslighting is part of their process and here's a ritual where the queen of england uh, uses what looks like a pink sephira maybe it's to ferret to ignite the third strand of dna so alex and i brought this up on uh, gnosis episode i think it was seven for those who want to go a little deeper so here we are Majesty, the Commonwealth of Nations globe. Jerusalem tree standing on top of the hill representing England and England feels that it's its place in reality to wow. convert all this to their religion. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing how much Judaism they grab. It's all, all in Freemasonry. Of course, everything's in there because it's Gnostic. So every religion is stuffed into Freemasonry, but 
Did you hear about this stone of Schoon? No, is that the coronation that, stone? The coronation stone. Oh wow! Is, yeah. Get this, the literally the stone that Jacob slept on when he had the vision of God and the angel and wrestled with the angel, and they literally trace it. And somehow made its way to Ireland and then Scotland. And it has to be there to show. And, and they, they believe, according to this one video, I haven't been able to corroborate it, but the Stone of Schoon is, is for, for real. But they supposedly have a genealogy tracing the English kings all the way back to the Bible era, to Jacob, hmm. to early Judaism. And they do think... They started calling London the New Jerusalem right. and um, other kind of like weird, you know, I think what they're saying is that we're, we're the chosen people. Yes. We're the chosen Absolutely. people. Well, and, they're all, they are all things to all people because like you said, the syncretic Gnosticism, they can speak to everyone in their own language and their own religious customs and subtly assure them that yes, go along with our new world order because don't you see, we have the lineage. Yeah. those who are you know irrationally abiding by the these all of these doctrines to me are essentially manipulated i i don't think yeah. god chose any one man or, right. or men or people throughout time to uh dispense this wisdom i think this of has always been not. manipulation yeah yeah it gives them a aura of legitimacy and of course i want to give all my taxes to them and fight in their <laughs> wars of course they of course connected to god i don't want to go to hell <laughs> of course they flip bad it. yeah <laughs> <laughs> they flip it all and and it's yeah. it's gobbledygook and you need you need a team of uh independent scholars to even make sense of it yeah and you won't find that so you really do have to have uh people individually driven to get to the bottom of it because if you're trying to yeah. make this your living you're going to run into the same machinations of these infiltrators and they're going to discourage discourage you yeah. uh, slander you defame you demonetize you so i guess ignore this is a you. good point ignore you ridicule you uh anything goes with secret society yeah and so uh real quick i'll just do a plug uh gnosis is independent we don't receive any corporate funding. Uh, this is a freedom of speech project. This is a labor of love. If you don't want your children to be slaves to the new world order and you hear this, I need you to share it because I am shadow banned. I had at one point 50,000 followers on Twitter. Wow. It's been reduced to 30. I get almost zero interaction. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Wow. Um, YouTube, we have over 57,000 subs. Uh, I'm lucky if I crack a thousand views in a week. Wow. Uh, that's this is for all the people out there who maybe are not aware of how bad the censorship is. Uh, any mainstream channel that uh, that is like a essentially the town square now is part of the new world order. And Twitter, there's still some hope because perhaps Elon Musk is a white hat. He's done some good work, but then just the other day, he, he's given us a new CEO and she's linked to the World Economic Forum. So yeah. who knows how it's all going to play out. But we, with the power we do have, the hoax, is that you have friends. If you send this to everyone in your email list, share this in your social media, talk about it, 
If you want to support it, uh, go to Robert's website, become a subscriber, make a donation. We, he, he and I were the same. We're buying books with it. You know, you can, we're, this is what we do for fun in our spare time. We, we, we research everything we can get our hands on and we do comparative study outside of academia so that yeah. we won't be slaves to the new world order. So I'm, I'm going to get off my soapbox, but, uh, yeah, these books don't pay for themselves and, and well all we're said. doing is well said. Yeah. But go right ahead, please. No, that's it. I'm upset enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you've, you, well, you, I mean, you've done, uh, done us all a great service. I, I, I'm going to continuously listen to the, to the podcast until I can essentially, uh, incorporate all that knowledge into my own search. And, uh, and speaking of a book, do you have a timeline? Cause I would, man, I would love to see that get out there ASAP. What do you mean a timeline? Uh, for the, the publication of, oh, uh, uh, let me, I know it's a massive, massive, uh, amount yeah. of work. I'm, yeah. Let me, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get a, uh, an agent book agent interested in it, which would put me light a fire under my ass. But if I do the book, I would have trouble doing the podcast. Although a couple of people suggested I just transcribe. That's a great idea. You know, because I, they're all written out. I, I spend weeks writing them. You know, they're basically 30, 40 page essays. So probably what I should do. Just do it. I think so. I, I think they're okay. They they read extremely well and they're, and, uh, they're very engaging. And I love that you've added you. So you're a musician. So the whole thing yeah. is musical. It, it's, it's a lot of fun. You're constantly <laughs> dropping like a James Bond clips. <laughs> and it's true. It's like the, the most yeah. popular movie series of all time. Yeah. is James Bond. There what, it is. 27 plus yep. 50. What is it at now? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great propaganda. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. The, the ultimate alpha male English psychopath cool guy how cool is he how great is england it's incredible the power yeah. of theater it's such garbage yeah you know it's such total garbage, garbage. <laughs> you know it's training people to think that you know by enlisting themselves in their majesty's secret service yeah that you know they are essentially well it's it's the promise of freemasonry right you're in the club yeah you're in the club sex Sex and drugs, sex and booze, fast cars, saving the world from evil. Hit the hit the high points. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, if you if you rise high enough, you can get a crown like this guy here, this despicable <laughs> subhuman, I don't even know what to call this, skinwalker. I mean, that's not a human being. Wow. You know. I don't know about that. Wow. <laughs> Well, you can see, can you see the picture of the King of England festooned with uh, Epstein Island? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Look at that. <laughs> That's what I was referring to, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's, the, that's the root of empire, guys. That's it's all brilliant. people that are willing to sacrifice you to their devil. That is so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and he took $250 million from the British people to throw himself a party at his coronation. That's just disgusting. Yeah. We should have no regard for them. We should ban and boycott anything to do with the crown, anything to do with Marvel, Disney, any of their uh, appendages, because yeah. they are coming for your children. Uh, 
the trans agenda is getting children to mutilate themselves. And here's where it goes to, here's where it connects to Baphomet. You know, mm -hmm. Baphomet is this androgynous icon of, of demonology. That's right. And That's right. the cult of the cult of Galilee required their priests mm -hmm. to castrate themselves. Of course, wow. the Judaic religion is is about a covenant with mm -hmm. Yahweh, the storm deity, which is also another name for the devil, depending on your perception. And how do you seal this covenant? You provide your, your foreskin for yourself and all of your fellow slaves. And then this entity is supposed to provide for you throughout all of your days and throughout time. So oh, wow. it's quite a weird bargain. This demon is striking. And genital mutilation in the form of cast, uh, castration rituals, uh, better known as circumcision, is ongoing and, and it needs to be stopped. There's, there's no medical purpose to it. That is beneficent. Yeah. It's it's all a lie. Yes. Fascinating. Oh yeah, but yeah, I would love to. Yeah, if you just transcribed it uh, and and printed it, uh, if you need any help with covers, I know you're a visual artist as well, so you probably wouldn't need me. But no, uh, I would I'd be need happy you. to assist. <laughs> okay, <it's laughs> well, great. I'd love that. Well, you're wearing plenty of hats already, and the, and yeah, guys, yeah, check I, out the podcast. It's so yeah. much fun. Robert's got a great sense of humor. You need it for this stuff. <laughs> you do. Well, thanks so much, Cameron. Well, it's my pleasure. I mean, uh, and I hope we could do this again. And if there's anyone that uh, you see that I've done previous episodes with that you'd like to collaborate with, say Joseph Abel, he's down to come on the show. He's he's aware of your work as well. Awesome. Sure. Absolutely. Is that the Macbeth witches? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Just wanted to throw that up there to just kind of set the tone for what we're dealing with. <laughs> that. That's great. There's the serpent again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are obsessed with the serpent. Wow. Oh, look at that. So uh, so you're ne when could we expect the next episode of The Hidden Life is Better? Uh, soon, within a week. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And then pretty soon after that, we'll we'll have the... The detailed takedown of uh, of Hamlet. Brilliant. Which ends with everybody dead. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, let's see. Uh, what? So, this episode, you're thinking in the next next month or so? Yeah, the uh, episode nine will probably be out in a week. It's almost done. Could you tell us a little bit about Sabotage V? So he was a Kabbalist. So the Kabbalah began in southern Spain and southern France at the exact time of a, of a resurgence of Gnosticism. It's very Gnostic. It doesn't have to be. It's been adopted by uh, the Hasidic community, which blends it with the Bible and, you know, worshiping of God, but it's a very strange, strange system. And there's lots of different Kabbalahs, but it seems to work that crazy magic in that it, it makes people think they are the Messiah. Wow. And this gentleman, Sabbatai Savi began to believe he was the Messiah. And what's unusual about him is that he somehow in the mid 1600s 
news about him spread all over Europe in the Middle East. And millions of Jews believed him to be the Messiah and believed these stories about the Messiah, that he was the Messiah. And, and there's all this magic about the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, you know, the whole world will be set right. And he was going, and part of this whole thing of the Messiah is that the, the Arabs were going to convert and all this mystical magic was going to happen. And he went to, wasn't Constantinople. And uh, the Islamic ruler said, all right. You know, he was getting too popular. He was getting too powerful. He was becoming a pain. He goes, I tell you what. If you're the Messiah, if I shoot you full of arrows, you'll live. So I tell you what, I'll give you a choice. Let me shoot you full of arrows or you can convert to Islam. And of course, he converted to Islam. And it was this huge scandal and this huge letdown. But along the way, he had started to invert some of the laws of Judaism, some of the purity laws. And he felt like... The sooner, if I break all these laws, the Messiah will come sooner or the magic will happen sooner. It was a very strange movement that was hugely popular, even amongst Jews that hadn't been traumatized. Because a lot of the, the issues with Gnosticism do come around trauma. I mean, we, we create this as human beings through trauma and this kind of hatred of the world comes from the evil that's in the world, which ultimately... Who can say where evil comes from? But he seems to have been traumatized. But he took it from this Isaac Luria, who was another Kabbalist who thought he was the Messiah. And back in Spain, this Abraham Abu Lafia, big Kabbalist, thought he was the Messiah. And it even comes up to the present day. I wish I had this picture where the Kabbalists in Brooklyn thought their big rabbi, uh, Menachem Schneerson was the Messiah. And he didn't tell anyone he wasn't the Messiah. And in my neighborhood, there's all these pictures of Schneerson, the rabbi, with the word Messiah under it. But he's been dead for 30 years. But they still think he's the Messiah. It's like it really, there's something about this philosophy that really grips people and it's deeply embedded in freemasonry it seems to be deeply embedded in, in all kinds of western magic because it drew on the whole entire history of western magic there's not a lot original in it except they just kind of substituted hebrew letters and and hebrew names for what were an amalgam of pythagoras and neoplatonism and kind of a Buddhism, they bring back in reincarnation, uh, which is absent from the Bible, more or less, and they bring in the divine feminine, which got stamped out in the Bible for some reason. And it kind of gave an excitement to Judaism that's kind of dull. The Bible's kind of dull compared to, say, you know, the Greek myths and Greek philosophy and math and literature just these stories. Well, Kabbalah kind of juiced up Judaism. And it was opposed by Maimonides, the great Jewish philosopher, 12th century philosopher, was vehemently opposed to 
uh, Kabbalah because he saw that it's, you know, it's just kind of crazy. It's just made up stuff. It's just make up whatever you want and call it true. But it's exciting to people because it's it's theater. It's not theater. It's a it's this language, this use of language and storytelling, which is akin to theater, that transfixes people, and and you know, in a certain way, kind of makes them crazy. And it's part of the elitist thing. It's very gnostic. They have these same kind of crazy stories about the creation myths how the world came into being, and what happens when you die. It's just, one crazy story after another that's not reasoned out. It's not said it must be like this, like Greek philosophy. It must be like this because it can't be like that. And there's this logical kind of reasoning and rationality to it. It's just pure mysticism. It's just pure made up stuff that people decide to follow. It kind of creates these cults. But it, it was synonymous with with magic and it was thought that if you did certain things you would get certain results and those certain things were were weird meditations and breathing exercises and visualizations and until you would have an experience which is very similar to gnosis to the gnostic experience you they claim that you could have a direct experience of the divine but it seems to have actually just driven a lot of people crazy but it got incorporated all over all over Europe it was big Heinrich uh, Cornelius Agrippa the famous magician John Dee um, it seemed to really influence Pico Mirandola and uh, Marsilio Ficino might have helped start the, the Reformation and it, part of it is fun you know you can't argue with it it's like wow that's really interesting you know that's that's really fun it it, it 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 in some ways it is very appealing and it has a big following but if you really try to get into it it just you know, it just scrambles your brains there's no there's no exit <laughs> just doing more of it it's really it's really scary stuff cuz it can it's like a drug it's like taking acid you know, I you bet. can have a great experience, yes, indeed, but you'll probably just want to keep doing it, and eventually, you know, you're not going to be useful for anything. Right. Well, you know, it's so strange because every Masonic Lodge is is a miniature of Solomon's Temple. Yeah. And, and the whole thing is a ritual space. There's no windows, so you can't look within. within. Yeah. And... It's apparently witchcraft. It's indistinguishable. They use the exact same techniques of initiation. Uh, if you look into the history of the Bible, to me it's strange because you know Solomon's Temple is this ritual chamber that is born out of the Egyptian uh, temple building process where they would create effigies of man in stone. Or in the case of the Great Pyramid, uh, a mock mountain, a human mountain. And this is where Crowley is said to have uh, received the book of the law, right, from Iowas, and I think it was, what year was this, the 30s? I think it was 1906, actually. Oh, that, that early. Yeah, it was that early, yeah. And so it's it's the same archetype or typology that you see with Moses climbing Mount Sinai to receive the dispensation from Yahweh. So it's they're just syncretically uh, appropriating everything, everything and then insinuating themselves as the new messiahs, treading on that lineage that they've they've you know reminded people 
the cool thing about Judaism, though, is that it banned child sacrifice, like right out of the gate. That's the beginning of Judaism, like cut the shit and drinking of blood, like cut it. No more of that. Um, no more uh, magic. Magic is strictly forbidden in the Bible, even uh, prophecy and astrology. And of course, it's in there. And there are a few stories that let it leak back in. But Judaism really, I do think, was trying to purify religion that had gotten pretty whacked out. You know, a lot of ways that Buddhism, trying to purify um, Hinduism, which got kind of whacked out. And then the mystery religions with, I guess, all these crazy rituals, you know, throwing children onto uh, Moloch, mm. all kinds of intense kind of public sexuality and ritual sex. And they just, they cut that all out. No sex before marriage, only sex, only in marriage. And they really tried, I think, to do that. And that kind of comes out with the Essenes. And then that got all crazy because there are all these laws, you know, ritual purity and kind of the obsessiveness with, with all these laws and, Jesus came along to kind of clean up Judaism, which had gotten full of infighting and difficulties and away from its intended purpose. Because uh, Gnosticism probably did begin with the Jews and Jesus got lumped in with that and it got corrupted again. And the Gnosticism corrupted the Christianity and and there's these cycles of purity and defilement. And we seem like we're into a heavy period of defilement right now. It's like it's crept back in. And it's being glorified. And you just got to turn on Netflix or, you know, watch some music videos. And it's really intense. And it's it's attractive because it it's fun. It doesn't look like fun, but when you're young... You're easily influenced, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which I didn't see anything bad about when I was 18. I do remember getting a Black Sabbath record, and my dear grandmother was there that Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> my sister gave me this Black Sabbath record. And I was like, oh, I was mortified. <laughs> I never liked, you know, heavy metal or heavy rock or any of that death shit. But, you know, there it was, my own sister. And now it's just so much worse. Oh, my God. You know, this shit I try to tell my kids, like, you know, little Uzi Vert, you know, Lucifer. You know all this stuff like this. Oh, yeah. It's amazing that any anyone's healthy anymore. Anyone's solid. Anyone's like... Because, you know what? We're hard to kill and we're hard to corrupt and we are strong and we have an intense strength in us of morality and decency and love and they just got to throw like everything at us you know but we keep standing and we're still standing and you know if we could just keep that love alive like seriously like just that like go out in the world and love the world Forget all the shit you read, you know, forget all the stuff you saw on Twitter and your research, which is all really important, but it can 
can make you fearful and negative. And you've got to pull that core out of you that, you know, they can't, they can't kill me. You can't kill me. You know, if you do, you won't really kill me because, you know, I've been through the fire, man. I've been purified. I've been to hell and back with this shit. It got to me. You know, they had taken all kinds of fucking drugs when I was younger. Somehow I survived. I wasn't too bad. I never got addicted to anything. But, you know, I was cool. Be a beatnik, be a hippie, take acid. Well, speaking of which, we had uh, Robert Forte. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen that presentation or if you're familiar with his work. No. Uh, Robert Forte was pretty much anyone who was anyone in psychedelica he was on a first name basis with uh he was the first guy to give mdma to hunter s thompson no kidding yeah he uh he was there for timothy leary in his dying days taking care of him oh okay i've heard of this he worked guy, yeah. closely with alexander shulgin learning to synthesize mdma wow uh, so i i did a lot of uh uh, I added a lot of visual accompaniment to his story because it, it's profound. And, and what Robert's done with Joe Atwell and others is point out how the 60s were nothing but social engineering. And, Absolutely. And if you look into William Ramsey's work, he's written these tremendous books explaining, you know, the effect of Aleister Crowley on humanity. Oh, absolutely. And anyone who was anyone in that scene was reciting his dogma and his yeah. catechism. And, you know, he's a Mason, of course. Uh, yeah, Crowley, Crowley was, and you've got the preeminent influencers for a decade that are telling everyone, you know, the way to know yourself and become enlightened is to drop acid. Yeah, and they never talk about the casualties. They don't talk about no. the spiritual uh, contamination that can take place. And uh, you know, now modern influencers like Joe Rogan, you know, he's he's promoting DMT, cannabis. I don't have an issue of cannabis myself, but I yeah. think. You know, we any substance we have to be mindful that absolutely. Uh, you know, you have to have a, a, a knowledge of who you are and what you're about. Yeah. And you also need safeguards. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I've dug deep into into that stuff. There's Hans Utter on the Jan Irvin show. Oh, yes. With, uh, yes. Wake and wake, uh, burying the dead or something. I mean that that shook me up because I used to like the Grateful Dead. That was. But the whole Dave McGowan thing, who started it, the great genius, um, but this uh, Laurel Canyon thing, the whole 60s, yeah. Yeah, the whole invention of the hippie, he takes it right back to the very beginning of that. What's his name? His Greek name, the first hippie with the crazy dancing in L.A. Uh, Vito something. Yeah, Garolitis. He's probably a pedophile yeah. as well. I yeah. think he hints, yeah, it's, yeah, it's incredible, mind-boggling. Mind <laughs> I mean, back in the day when I would, I would discover this stuff, it would shake me up. It would shake me up for like a couple months. I felt like, uh, you know, electric current, like, oh my God. I'm like, you know, it's like finding out some horrible secret about your parents or something. What? Remember the moon landing too, because oh, yeah. if you're a critical thinker and you think about, you see that it was just a huge lie and it really shakes you up until it just becomes, that's just reality is that you're constantly being lied to. 
Yes. And then you want to tell others. So the, hence the podcast, hence your podcast. Like you feel this this need to let others know they're being deceived and it's very hard to do. You just get looked at like you're crazy. Well, more than ever though, I'm finding that people are waking up on so many levels. And so if, if someone out there like us, you aspire to communicate these ideas, uh, ideas, uh, go ahead, more power to you. Because I, I really think that we're, we're due for another sea change equivalent yeah. to what we saw in 2016. Yeah. Uh, there's a massive psychological operation from the heart of the U.S. government uh, known as Q. And this is another one of these topics that is seen yeah. as anathema. But, you know, methinks the lady doth protest too much, right? <laughs> yeah. Why, why do they care so much if there's nothing to hide? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's because they are being uh, revealed. The, the revelation is here. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is remember, we don't have to play into it. We can boycott Netflix. We can bankrupt any corporation yeah. by yeah. inattention, by refusing yeah. to, to barter or deal with them. Yeah. And uh, hold each other accountable. And, and, you know, let's do things personally. Let's clean our own drinking water. They have yeah. poisoned the water. Yeah. So you can't wait on them to, to they never want to release you. They always want to keep you in yeah. shackles. Yeah. I agree. Yep, clean up your nest. Be aware. I mean, it's, you used to have to warn warn your kids about you know poisonous berries and snake bites and you know watch out you know for the rake. Don't step on that rake. Get banged in the head. And now it's like porn and coke and fentanyl, uh, shitty food, and you know it's like Lizzo. different. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like be careful what you consume. Oh my God! I call Lizzo the and you know, woke job of the hut, <laughs> or job of the woke. There we go. Job of the woke. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So, are, and you're a father. No, you're, no, no. It's great. You're a father yourself, Robert. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's been hard, man. It's been really hard. Just wrote some poems about it. Try to get them published. Like, man, I'm raising kids in this. Like middle of the sickness and a lot of it I, one of the reasons i woke up is i started to see it when i had kids it's like i don't want my kids watching that and i started getting you know conservative i guess i always had a conservative streak but it just becomes really apparent when you have a kid that there's just a lot of corruption going on and it's very hard because if you don't live in the country and kind of off the grid your kids are gonna get get it oh yeah and you can't forbid it or they're just gonna want it more you just got to trust that they're they do listen to you and you got to just sort of gently explain what's going on and not freak out and make sure your love together is stronger than that shit because it has no power against love it's it's when families get weak, which is, you know, why the families are getting weak, that that it can really infect people. But when you're when you have enough love, you're protected. It's that old saying, you know, one one match dispels the darkness and you know, darkness can't overcome light. So you got to have faith and yeah, your kids, you know, kids get weird, but they come back around because of that love and because, you know. 
you told him certain things and just the right tone of voice. He's kind of got to use that hypnotic command structure, you know, and you plant suggestions in, in a nice, calm voice and they'll hear you. They hear you. They don't seem to be listening, but they are. Well said. And yes, they're definitely under attack. It's it's a yeah. little onslaught. And, you know, you've got they're confusing children's gender, chemically, spiritually. Oh. Uh, these are all expected consequences of the idols they worship and the rites they perform. Yeah. Now you're seeing uh, they're they're just erecting occult monuments all over the world that feature you know transgender idols like men yeah. men breastfeeding. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean these people are clearly insane, but that you know yeah. once they're exposed, my hope is that the Q operation will kick back in the high gear with a Trump re-election. And now that we've been exposed to what a world of unbridled uh, Satanism, what it looks like and how what its end game yeah. is, that people will just rebuke it utterly, do the work necessary to reclaim local governance and refuse to do business with these slavers. Yeah. However you can. Yeah, there's definitely an awakening going on. I agree. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, Robert, this has been a lot of fun. I know we've uh, we had some technical issues earlier. The tech, yeah, the fun. tech. <laughs> but uh, I'd love to have you back on soon, and I, I, I'm anxiously awaiting your your latest release because, guys, this is one of the most phenomenal podcasts I've ever come across. And if you want to have a real I, I concept of what's happened to our world, Robert's he's got his finger on the pulse. So follow him and support him because. You know, people who are willing to do this research and put it out there, you know, they can change the world. Uh, formerly, I worked with, ironically, a Freemason named uh, Randall Carlson. And uh, when I knew him, hardly anyone else did. He might disagree because he's a little bit uh, full of himself. But uh, I know the work I did and I had the receipts. But uh, my point being, I knew that he needed support in getting his message out there. And we had a, a brief window where guys like John Irvin with Gnostic Media and Joe Atwill and Robert Forte and other independent researchers were able to get together and basically expose the op of the 60s that had devastated an entire yeah. generation. So that, that work is ongoing, and I was inspired by Gnostic Media because of that. So I, I, I look forward to bringing together the, the leading-edge scholars like Robert, like Robert Forte, Joe Atwill, uh, goodness, Michael Parker we just had on, and others. And if you have questions for them and you'd like to participate in this, uh, by all means, help us any way you can. And, and if you are creative and a content producer and you want to consider being on the show, please hit me up. Um, but Robert, did you have any uh, any parting words or anything you'd like to? And we can keep going, too. I just I just presume because I know we started at, oh, two o'clock. <laughs> yeah, so we're going on like three. Hours I got to get going. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate Cameron. You having me on. It's a great conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. And stay strong. Stay strong. Stay healthy. Thank you. Thank you to you as well. God bless you. And, and to everyone out there hearing this, you know, uh, we really need your support. So give us a like, give us a thumbs up, uh, subscribe, share it with your friends. If you want to become an ongoing subscriber, make a donation, even just drop a nice comment. I got some great comments recently. Put the wind in my sails. I said, you know what? Come hell or high water. I'm going to keep putting this out there. So awesome. Great. And please support Robert, thehiddenlifeisbest.com. Absolutely phenomenal. In a better world, the type of education your children deserve, Robert's the teacher. You know, he's bringing it together. This is a ton of work, guys. 
but it absolutely it it dovetails and coincides with everything I've been studying from from really great teachers all over the world my entire life. So please uh, give him some support. Uh, check out the whole show and uh, buy his book when it comes out. I know I'm going to. Thanks, Cameron. Well, Robert, thank you so much. God bless, and uh, I look God forward, bless. I look forward to having you back soon to see where uh, this this path of gnosis takes us. <laughs> awesome. Me too. Awesome. Godspeed and party on, everyone. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. -bye.